If you will, take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. We continue to work our way through this uh, gospel book. Message tonight entitled, Victory Over Evil. Can I just ask before I begin, has anybody here confronted evil this week in your life? Could I see a hand? Okay. Well, at least uh, the Scripture is still teaching and, and speaking to us. If you will, if you can, let's stand to honor the reading of God's Word. We'll pick up in verse 14, as you see on the screen. When they came to the disciples, now I want to pause there just to refresh you because it was last Sunday morning. I didn't preach last Sunday night, didn't preach this morning. When they came to the disciples, they would be Jesus and the A-team, and they're coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, okay? So when they came to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and scribes disputing with them. All of a sudden, the whole crowd saw him. They were amazed and ran to greet him. Then he asked them, what are you arguing with them about? Excuse me, what are you arguing with them about? Out of the crowd, one man answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I ask your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. He replied to them, You unbelieving generation, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring him to me. So they brought him to him, and when the Spirit saw him, it immediately convulsed the boy. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. How long has this been happening to him? Jesus asked the father. From childhood, he said. And many times it has thrown him into the fire or water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Then Jesus said to him, if you can. Everything is possible to the one who believes. Immediately the father of the boy cried out, I do believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly coming together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Then it came out, shrieking and convulsing him violently. The boy became like a corpse, so that many said, he's dead. But Jesus, taking him by the hand, raised him, and he stood up. And after he went to a house, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? And he told them, this kind can come out by nothing but by prayer and fasting. Now, before we pray, 
When you read this scripture, we could spend months because there's so much here. We're going to lift tonight and learn about this thing of being victorious over evil. Let's pray together. Father, it's my prayer that you'll take this portion of your word tonight. And with your word that's sharper than any two-edged sword that is growing and living, I pray that you will strike us in the core of our being. Father, we need a word from you. Remove me so that you can be seen in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Tonight we just finished singing a whole bunch of songs. And you know what I've discovered? You can learn a lot about people, about people from their music. Now you think I'm about to go into the secular realm, and I'm not going to go into the secular realm, but you can tell a lot about the church from her music. You know, uh, for years our music was littered with songs of victory and songs of war and and we sang hymns, and I'm just going to deal with the hymn part of it, not even the gospel or the other genres, just the hymns of it. You remember a song entitled, Faith is the Victory? You remember the old war horse that we still sing today, Victory in Jesus? We sang lyrics of things like, From victory unto victory his army shall he lead till every foe is vanquished, and Christ is Lord indeed. We sang lyrics like onward Christian soldiers marching us to war with the cross of Jesus going on before and then down I think in fourth verse it goes on to say hell's foundations quiver at the shout of praise. So brothers, lift your voices, loud your anthems raise. Now, when I read all those lyrics and I know all the titles of those songs, I kind of get a feeling, do you, that we're in a war. I mean... It seems to me like we're in a war and we're headed toward victory. But I I want to just tell you something. It is interesting to me the change inside the church over the past 50, 60 years. This week I sat down with three hymnals. Southern Baptist Convention produced a hymnal in 1956. They produced one in 1975. They produced one in 1992, and then they produced one in 2008. I didn't have the, the, I think it was 95, could have been 94, but it was right in that time frame. But I sat down with with the 56, the 75, and 2008 hymnals, and something real interesting jumped out at me. In the back of your hymnals, you have the alphabetical index, but you also have a topical index, dividing hymns by topics. Now, Kendall and I know this from hymnology in college. Some of you might know know it because you went to look. But it's interesting to me that the 1956 hymnal had a topic that none of the succeeding three hymnals had. It was entitled Christian Warfare. Totally left out from everything after 56. Now, that wasn't a big, it wasn't a large number of hymns, about about 20 in 1956. But, but, what, but what is interesting to me is that while we are still waging war, while we still are soldiers and players on the battlefield, it seems to me that we have discounted or dismissed that truth. And here's what I want to say to you. Anytime you go to war or you're in war, you better go with one objective in mind. You better go 
to win. Because the truth is, if that's not your objective, you will never win and you will be defeated every time. Now, I understand we have some deep theologians in the building tonight. Theologians that say, oh, Brother Jerry, God's already won the war, so what you worried about? It is true that after the second coming, after the revelation of Christ, after the battle of Armageddon has been fought, and the forces of evil have been cast into the, the lake of fire, it is true in that ultimate day that there is victory to be had because God's sovereign. He's already showed us the end game. But here's what I'm going to tell you. If we were to not concern ourselves about it, why did Paul concern himself about it so much? He urged us to fight a good fight. He urged us to put on the armor of faith. He urged us to stand firm against the evil one. And oh, by the way, the reason he encouraged us to do this is because if we're not fighting evil, we're falling for evil. If we're not standing against it, chances are we're going with it. And whether you know it or not, evil is taking a toll on the modern-day church and Christianity Christian. Because we don't want to face evil and stand against evil. Believers are faltering. Churches are failing by the dozens. And even in America, Christianity is disintegrating. And it's not because God's lost his power. It's not because God's lost his sovereignty. It's not because he's lost his place in heaven. It's rather because we have seemingly become like we read of Peter last week on the Mount of Transfiguration. We get together in a place that's safe and easy and painless, like the Mount of Transfiguration, and we just want to stay there. The four walls of the church have become so comfortable Now, I want you to think about it. Those three guys, I'm going back last week, those three guys, the A-team, were up there with Jesus. And Peter wanted to stay. I I dare say that John and James did too. But Jesus led them off of the mountain. And do you know why? Because he knew there were problems awaiting him. He knew there was evil to be confronted. He knew that there was victory to to be won for him in that day and for us in this day. So let's just kind of learn from this story tonight. So let's just be refreshed about the story and some of the lessons that we can learn from this story. First of all, I'll just, I'll just tell you, a man, what you know is that it seems that a man brought his demon-possessed son to Jesus. Now, I know this because if you look in verse... Um, 17, it says, Teacher, Jesus, I brought my son to you. Well, now wait a second. They're standing there arguing. Things have gone bottom upwards in the crowd, and, and things are not well. And Jesus hadn't even seen the boy. But the man said, I have brought my son to you. You see, the, the truth is, when this dad brought his son to Jesus, and Jesus was nowhere visibly to be seen. He handed his son to the disciples, to those who followed Jesus, to, to those who 
believe in Jesus, expecting that they would respond just like Jesus did. And he was disappointed. May I offer this just kind of lesson for us today? I wonder, I just wonder how many people in the United States of America today, how many people in Alabama, how many people in Hueytown come to the, to the people who claim to know our Lord Jesus. And when they bring their needs and their hurts and their pain and their family to us, they expect us to do what only Jesus could do because somehow they seem to know that he has the answer and he is the answer. And they come to us expecting what Jesus can do. And how many of them walk away disappointed? I mean, you look at verse 14, they came down and they came to the disciples when they come to the church. Do they find a large crowd and do they find them arguing with each other? I wonder if the world today, the reason they're not flocking to Jesus is because when they bring a problem to his people that they find us inept or impotent and they, and they walk away totally disenfranchised and disenchanted because they don't feel like that we have what we're supposed to have. We don't have the victory over the evil. We don't, we don't walk spiritually like he wants us to. And I just want to say this. Under God, as best as I can tell from this book, it's not supposed to be that way. We see in the Scripture, Jesus didn't mince any words. When he found out what was going on, he said, You unbelieving, another translation says, faithless generation. And we'll get to what that means in just a second. If he calls his disciples faithless and unbelieving, wonder what adjectives he has for us today. He hasn't called he's called us to be victorious. He's called us to be to fight, to win victory over evil. That's when he comes into our life, when his spirit comes into our life. It's not us doing it on our own. He us walk in the Christ life, the spirit filled life. And when he comes into our lives, he comes to make us victorious. So I finished the story so we could get to our what I think are our lessons from this story. They've argued about it. They can't do anything about it. He says, bring him to me. So Jesus steps up. When he steps up, evil doesn't like it. Evil does not ever like it when Jesus steps into the picture. So he throws the boy on the ground, causes him to foam and gash. Jesus delivers the boy. He commands the demon to come out of him. And it, does, it happens. And then at the end of this story, he teaches his disciples, and by extension, us, how we might be able to be strong and win victories. When I look at this story, I'm just going to offer you three quick truths. You just heard most of the message 
I want to offer you three quick truths today. The first of all, from this story, I find if we are going to find victory over evil, we must come to terms with the problems that we face. The problems we face. Anybody had a problem this week? Could I get an amen? Ooh, you're doing better than me. You see, the truth is we face problems, and problems are coming our way. And I'll just say this to you. If at the end of this service you were to choose to make this a real altar, and whatever is between you and God, you were to get it right. You were to come to this altar, and when we left tonight, this altar was stained with tears. And you were to repent of any sin, anything else that stands between you and the Lord, and you were to get that mountaintop experience right here. Let me just tell you something. Before you get out the door, before you get to work tomorrow, before some of you wake up on the job, before you get up and out tomorrow, there'll be problems awaiting you. In fact, we tell people when we lead them to the Lord that you better be careful the next 48 or 72 hours because Satan's going to throw all he can at you. You're going to face problems. You're going to have problems. Now, these, these four, Peter, James, John, and Jesus, just came down off the mountaintop experience. And here's some of the problems. I think these three problems that I'm going to mention are symbolic of the problems that face us. First of all, Jesus confronted a demon-possessed boy. Demon-possessed boy. Demon-possessed man. Now, we don't really like to talk about demon possession because, you see, we're Baptist, because, you see, we're enlightened. And, you know, the truth is, I don't really believe in demon possession. Well, I'll just tell you, I was taught that as a kid. I was taught that demon possession don't really happen anymore, right? Wrong. You say, well, Brother Jerry, I just don't believe in demon possession. I told the crowd Wednesday night, I'll repeat you. Preach it today, and I'm not trying to be offensive. I'm not trying to be a smart aleck. But here's what I want to say to us, that a lesson we probably need to learn extra Bible as well as in the Bible. What you believe has little impact on what is true. You can believe whatever you want. You can believe that the sky is orange. Believe it. It's okay. Go ahead and be wrong if you want to. You don't have to believe it. You can believe... You don't have to believe in things that are true. And yes, there is. I hope that Brother David, I'm sure that he is, is teaching our teenagers who have this real problem with absolute truth. I hope he is teaching them that yes, there is an eternal, absolute truth, and we don't get a say about it. By the way, do you know where our kids learned that principle that there is no absolute truth? From their parents and their grandparents. You see, the Bible teaches that there, there, are demon, there is demon possession because Jesus spent a lot of his three years casting out demons. And in this story, the Bible says this is one of those cases. It says that he had a bad spirit, a demon, and that demon possessed him to the point it caused him to do horrendous things. And when you read what horrendous things this boy was doing, here's what I want to tell you. It is a perfect picture of what Satan does in life. And I can sum all of these things up in one word. Are y'all ready? This may be worth your price of admission tonight. It's control. 
Satan wants to control you and me. Now, for the lost person, he can be possessed by Satan. And we're hearing some of that. We don't hear much of it over here because there's not that big distinction between, I'm sorry to say, between Christians and non-Christians in America because Christianity has become so cultural. But when you get in in third world nations where God seems to be moving, there's a lot of stories coming about about the demon possession. But here's what I'm going to tell you. That demon, whether he oppresses you, a saved person, or, or possesses you, a lost person, he wants control. Satan, evil, is all about control. I mean, you look here. He controls how, what this boy says. He's mute. He can't talk. He controls how he acts. He throws him down. He controls his response to those actions. He foams and grinds his teeth, and he even paralyzes the boy because he's rigid. And we can take every one of these characteristics and spend some time developing them and show a parallel to people, how people in this world are oppressed and possessed by evil. And I'm just going to tell you something, folks. If we're going to win victory over the evil, we better know where it is. And believers today do and will face this type of evil. And by the way, When Satan, when evil, demon, I don't care what word you put to it, when it controls a person, either oppresses or possesses them, it will seek to destroy them just like it did this boy. Threw them in the fire. Threw them in the water so they'll drown. You see, Satan doesn't care about us. He just cares about getting back at Jesus. Problems you face, you may well face a problem like, Evil, like a demon-possessed person. The second thing that he faced here was a doubting, was the doubting disciples. Hmm. Think about that. If you read the verse 18, end of verse 18, so, Daddy said, I asked your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. He, Jesus, replied to them, to them would be to the disciples, you unbelieving generation. And you get the idea his frustration grows a little bit. How long, must, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Now, I remember my mom saying, I'm not putting up with that very much. Y'all got me there? You feel it? Can you kind of feel his, uh, uh, his frustration? You know, the truth is, folks... We don't like the preacher to say this. This is one of those things like uh, uh, Peter not wanting Jesus to say he's going to the cross. We don't like the preacher to say this, but Jesus wasn't as kind many times as we'd want to think that he was. I mean, he called them unbelieving. He called them faithless. The, the Greek word literally means that they were unbelieving, they were unfaithful, and they were without Christian faith. And I come back to the same question. It seemed to permeate my being every time that I, that I saw a new uh, principle in the Scripture. If Jesus said that of the disciples, now remember who we're talking about. Those disciples, three chapters back in chapter 6, these are the disciples that Jesus sent out, and they 
And they cast out demons. And they healed people. And they preached the gospel. And now he calls them unbelieving. If Jesus says that about them, wonder what he says about us. I'm reminded that Luke wrote Jesus' words and he says, Guys, if you have faith only the size of a mustard seed. I mean, just... That little mustard seed, you can do extraordinarily same things. Now, I asked you a question. Could one of the reasons be why we might be powerless or without His power, without living in the, in the Spirit-filled life, could one of the reasons really be our doubts? God... I know you're powerful. I know you created the world. But I really doubt that you can work through me. I doubt you can speak through me. I doubt you can really live through me. I doubt you can change lives through me. Yeah, I know I have this neighbor. and But Lord, I can't even, I can't even invite him to church, let alone invite him to you. Lord, here I am. Send somebody else. Does that sound like Moses at the burning bush? Can't talk. Can't do this. One of the things that I didn't say when Jesus came down, when the man had his son there with his disciples, but it fits right now. Those doubting disciples, those disciples that couldn't, he said, these disciples of yours couldn't. Please listen. They were representing Jesus. People saw them as belonging to Jesus. And by their lack of faith, their lack of power, their lack of passion, they were bringing shame to the name of Jesus. You see, one of the problems that we may face are our doubts. But the story continues. Now, some problems that we may face may be in that demon-possessed man, may be in the doubting disciples, but it certainly would be in the discouraged father, number three. The discouraged father. When I read this, and I hope we can all, when we read Scripture, we don't read it like something cold. I, think, I hope we can read it with a heart for it. I think I can hear from this, from this dad that he came in desperation. That his son is now probably a young man because he says he's had the, the, this problem since he was a kid. I've already said he brought his son to Jesus. And since Jesus wasn't there, he gave them to the people who represented Jesus. He expected them to do like Jesus did. So can you imagine the discouragement and the disappointment when all he could find were powerless knockoffs of the real thing? He needed help, and he needed healing. He needed a miracle. And all he could find were pretenders. 
You know, the truth is, if you look back in verse 14, the argument that was going on with the scribes could have well been, well, guys, y'all can't do this, so you know Jesus is a phony. You know he can't be who he says he is. Maybe you've had some success, but, but perhaps you're living a lie. And even as I wrote those words, my heart was broken because I wonder if the very reason the building's empty on Sunday mornings and Sunday nights is this culture may have this view of Jesus because of me or because of us. Once again, these are the problems that we face. That sets the problem into place. But when we think about the problems and we think about and we think about the solution, I think in every problem that we can have up to three presents. I want you to see the presence of the things that you may know, that you may understand. You see, when I see when I read this story, and Jesus and the and his entourage comes down off the mountain. It's like a movie. Down here, things are going bad. The disciples are, are about to fall on their face, and they've already shamed the one that they said they served. And it's like they say when they saw Jesus at a distance, they were amazed. Obviously, they could tell that he had been with God because he probably had his face still shining. They were amazed. And I can see Jesus. i tell you what I see Jesus like. He's like... The hero riding in to save the day. But still in that camp, still where when Jesus is and his A-team and his other disciples, his daddy and the scribes and all the crowd are around, there are at least three presidents there. I'll mention them very quickly. First of all, there's always Satan there. Satan's always there. Satan's always arguing with people who are trying, who are trying to, to serve the Lord. Satan was in control of some people. He was in control probably of, of the naysayers, the scribes, and other parts in the crowd. He probably, he probably helped the hurt in the daddy's heart become almost unbearable. And he certainly put the doubts in the minds of the disciples. Maybe they felt like they could, but there was this little voice inside of them. Have you ever heard it? You can't do that. But there was also the presence of sin in that camp. You know, this was rampant in the disciples because the Bible clearly tells us to him who knows to do good and does it not. To him it's sin. The Bible says everything that's not from faith is sin. And immediately the non-believers were sinning, but I'm going to suggest to you that as they argued with the disciples, as they were probably nitpicking and fault-finding, that the disciples allowed sin to permeate them. Now, I'm just going to tell you, in any situation, there's normally... Please listen. This is important for us to understand. In any situation that's not going the way Christ would want it to go, there's probably enough sin to go around. You don't have to point fingers. You don't have to blame folks. But I want to, but I want to just move on through this because obviously Satan's there. Obviously sin's present, but the most pervasive presence in that crowd was none other than our Savior, Jesus. Jesus. 
He's the one that recognized the boy's condition. He's the one that uh, uh, that could bring real healing to the father's heart. He was the one that could that could touch the boy and do something about it. That's why he says confidently, like he says to us, "Bring him to me." Might I just say that might be the the battle cry tonight? You know somebody's hurting. You know somebody that's living a life. You, you heard all those guys on the uh, video today talk about how they were, how they were in prison, how they were, a lot of them for a long time. And a, and a Gideon brought them to him without ever taking them out of their jail cell. Verse 20 gives us a really, a really good look. So they brought him they brought, let me read it in my language. So they brought the boy to Jesus. When the Spirit saw Jesus, it immediately convulsed the boy. He was just showing out. He fell, the boy fell to the ground and rolled around foaming at the mouth. You know what? He's showing his true colors. Sis, listen, when evil comes into the presence of Jesus or one spirit-filled, he recognizes Jesus. Even when, even when we can't see it, Satan, The evil one knows who Jesus is. And when he gets in his presence, he writhes and he squirms and he shows out. And here's what I'll say to us right now. Neither you nor I will ever overcome evil until we have Jesus walking first person in our lives. Then we will know the power. Then we will know the power. Jesus is our only source of real power and authority. It is Jesus that stands in the gap. And oh, by the way, just so you know, Brother Jerry, that's good for all the super spiritual people, but that's really not for me. Well, here's what I'm going to tell you. Jesus rarely lets us off the hook. Did you know that? If he was going to let somebody off the hook, he would have probably let the disciples off the hook. And he didn't. He, he didn't say, it's okay. After all, I understand you're not perfect. I know you're doing your best. Everything, I understand. Rather, he said, you bunch of unbelieving, faithless people. He didn't let them off the hook. And I'm just going to tell you, he won't let us. Particularly in this matter of faith. And oh, by the way. Quick lesson for all of us. Faith is not like weeds. What do you have to do to get a weed to grow in your yard? All you have to do is get out of the way and it will grow. Faith is like a flower or a vegetable. It requires some care. It requires some attention. It requires some it requires some water. It requires some fertilizer. It requires some food. 
How can we overcome evil? Jesus said, the only way you can do that is by prayer and fasting. After we connect with the Father and our doubts subside, we think we got it made, but may I just say this to you, the only way that you'll connect with the Father is through prayer. Two stories and I'm done. Jim Cimbala, you've heard me mention him before. You know, uh, he's pastor of the Brooklyn Tabernacle in Brooklyn, New York. You know that Kelly and Eddie actually went up and visited the Brooklyn Tabernacle uh, a couple of years ago. It's an incredible place. They were, but they're they're in a place where you don't play games with the Lord. If you're not sold out, you don't go in. Years ago, in his book, Fresh Wind and Fire, Jim, uh, the pastor, relates a story how, I think you may have heard Gary Stewart share it with you, but Jim uh, relates a story about how things were not going good, had a broken down building, few people, and it was in a troubled time of his life, and he said, and he was having a, a prayer time, and God spoke a word to him and said, If you will pray, if you will te- lead your people to pray, I'll build a church. And today, honestly, they are one of the most looked-to congregations in the land. And what they're known for, yes, they're known for Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. Our choir does some of their things. But you know what they're really known for? Praying. Praying. They are not a church that prays. They are a praying church. We just got back from a church that I would describe the same way. There is a spirit of divine intervention that flows across that place. It was not, I don't believe this, and I think Michael's... uh, uh, book will bear it out. And Jim's book certainly will. It's not something that happens overnight, but it's something that starts on one night. You can't have tomorrow if you don't have today. You can't be a prayer tomorrow if you don't start today. I want to call us tonight. If you'd like to have victory over evil, here's the deal. It begins in your prayer life. I'm reading a book by Chris Hodges, pastor of Church at Highland. This is a very engaging book. But right now I'm in the middle of his section where he's talking about prayer and how for so many people it's such, it's such drudgery to pray a long time. And he talks about how prayer is communicating with your Father. How many of us have lost our Father in this room What would you give for one more conversation with him? If your heavenly father is really your father, you talk to him about everything. Here's the deal. Whether you talk to him or not, he knows, and he loves you anyway. Would you bow your heads? We're really not going to sing tonight. I'm going to ask Kendall to just play a little bit. I just want to open this up.
open the altar up for a time of prayer. Pray for God to reveal to you whatever might be standing between you and Him and give you the courage to repent. And then I want to ask you to pray and ask Him to show you the people in your life that He's put there so that you could speak life into them, His life. And then pray for a burden. The altar is open. You can come.